Welcome into Fundraise Now. The purpose of this show is to introduce you to ideas that can help your organization raise money and solve problems for the issues and causes you care about. My first guest is one of the pioneers of digital fundraising at Cornell University and is now at Boyce Thompson Research Institute. He's written on countless fundraising topics such as giving days, crowdfunding, and political fundraising. He was generous enough to give us some time while on vacation in Florida. Please help me welcome in Keith Hannon. night down at the pool so if you if you're picking oh, okay. up any of the background noise let me know um, okay hopefully not i got my headphones and i'm talking into my microphone so. where where are oh. you uh where are y'all at in orlando oh okay so you went to visit the magic kingdom <laughs> no we're not gonna do disney on this trip we we did some disney uh last year so we basically decided we're just gonna we're gonna do a day at like okay we're gonna do a lego land day in uh other than that, we're going to basically be poolside. Keith, talk to me about Cornell University and how you got started there. Perfect situation because they were looking for someone. It was kind of a ripple effect. So the, the, there was a relatively new VP of alumni affairs. And he had met Andrew. Andrew mm-hmm. was working alumni stuff at Princeton. And mm-hmm. Chris Marshall was the name of the VP who is now yeah. a graduate. He says to Andrew, basically, I think you're brilliant. What would it take for you to come work for me at Cornell? Huh. Write your job, write your drop job description. Oh, interesting. And I'll sign off on it. Essentially, kind of that one of those things. And so Andrew takes him up on it. He says, "Sure, come up." And Andrew says, "You know, I think I think social media is going to have a huge place in alumni relations moving forward." So he says, "Sure, come on up, do it." Mm. And so Andrew had been there about a year when I went in to interview with him, and you know, was looking for someone who could manage online communities they were already really starting to grow a lot uh linkedin mm-hmm. facebook etc and they also really were hoping for somebody who could handle video and, you know video major i seen so that wasn't a problem for me mm-hmm. andrew you know i remember interviewing with him and he's like yeah like trying to mess around with this thing called live streaming and he's like oh, players all these you know so they needed somebody that had some of that technical <laughs> experience it's funny to think back on huh? how hard live streaming was and how nobody at Cornell, yeah. Even, like, now you just, communication. you just press a button. Like, yeah. Now be, you do it. Now you do it from your phone. Yeah. It, yeah. There'll be generations like, that'll used to require you know three rare connection pieces, like connectors, to connect different wires <laughs> and adapters, and you know you had to do fire and wire. We're eight, saying fire wire we're, we're saying this, and this is like this is like I mean this is like what six seven years ago. This isn't you know what I mean. Yeah, this yeah, isn't like yeah. the eight the eight, the eighties or anything. Right, so it was just a nice blend of like somebody that had done, you know, I had done social media for my previous job in LA. I had a video background, so it was just a really, a really nice fit. And you know, looking back on it now, what a rare opportunity to find that higher ed because just there were not a lot of places doing it. Right, right. So I finally come on board in May of 2011, and I give Andrew a tremendous amount of credit and just letting me go. I mean, I did some things in the early mm. going that just were mm. really raising eyebrows at this 
yeah. Ivy League institution. Like, what what is this guy sure. doing? What is this type of content that he's putting out there? And one of the first things I did was I had met some people at MIT uh, huh. at a Cornell conference. We came up with this idea. I think I, I emailed them after we had been talking about some stuff. And I said, hey, we should do something online where we kind of pit our alumni against one another. And the idea I had was I had noticed that wow. both both schools kind of have a, a high amount of well-known fictional TV and movie characters that have were said to have gone to our respective institutions. Yeah. Like we should do like a tournament for best fictional alumnus and get and get all of our alumni to vote for it on social media. And both so of these stu- both of these student bodies are naturally competitive. You know what absolutely. I mean? Like they, they, absolutely. You know, you wouldn't find this necessarily just in every. If you did this at, a, at let's say we're both upstate New Yorkers, so if you did this at two SUNY schools, it might not work because the affinity is not there, at least yep. to the degree of these two institutions. But they're just it's just a natural kind of thing. So that's that's tremendous. Yeah, it was really great. We had really good engagement. We had uh, uh, we had a whole bunch of uh, you know jumps and followers and post mm-hmm. engagement. We. Uh, People at MIT threw up a quick little WordPress site to host all stuff. They ended up just dominating us because 90% of people in comic book movies, I guess, ended up going to MIT. I didn't realize it. Right. So, two of his still shows are... But it still went. It still went. Yeah. You know? Yeah. No, it was great. But there are people just, what is this? Why are we doing this? Like, we're, right. we're an elite higher ed institution. Why are we talking about comic book characters and movie character, which does have to do with the bottom line, and, you know, what nobody was really seeing is that it all gets to the bottom line. You, you have to start somewhere, you know. In those days, we were still kind of trying to preach to an empty room a little bit, so you got to build it up, right. and they, did, they weren't... Uh, and they didn't also understand that what I try to tell people still when I when I go to colleges, understand that social yeah. media is a playground for most people. You're not going uh-huh. to lecture to them. You know, if you want them to engage with you, you have to do it in a way that abides by the rules of the playground in a way. Um, that means you have to be interesting. So, yeah, so I give Andrew a lot of credit. I mean, for the first couple of years there, there was a lot of people walking around the building kind of wondering why Cornell hired two guys to, as they would put it, <laughs> play, play on Facebook all day long. Right. So, you know, it's still... You still see fundraisers that are a little allergic to technology or change. And, uh, yeah. And that's what really got me going down the road of prospect research in terms of digital media because right. I knew we had to we I knew we had to show the critics in the fundraising side of our operation, which carried all the weight that mm-hmm. digital media did very much have a purpose there. Yeah. So, that we set off you had a great, yeah, a great line in one of your one of your blogs. You said, uh, "It turns out rich people are on are on Facebook too." Yeah, you know, yeah. so so yeah. engaging these folks are are you know important. Yeah, I remember one early meeting I had at Cornell. Uh, I was talking to a major gift officer, and I had just kind of put out a plea for something regarding LinkedIn. And, some other stuff and she says to me well I can tell you no one of my portfolio is on LinkedIn and I said okay well maybe your portfolio is maybe that's the case knowing very well that that was not the case 
It just could be, just statistically. <laughs> right. So uh, I emailed a friend in, uh, on the development side of the house. I said, can you give me, <clears throat> can you give me the list of names in so-and-so's portfolio? So she, <laughs> they did. I didn't email her back, but I was able to confirm my belief that, yes, there were plenty of people in her portfolio on LinkedIn. So that you just kinda, wanted to make uh, sure you weren't you weren't going crazy. Well, I just knew it wasn't time. It wasn't time to fight the battle yet. Talk to me a little bit about crowdfunding, you know, and how that started to you started to see a sea change in in, in in the industry when when crowdfunding got introduced. And and crowdfunding to me is pretty interesting because it it there's a specific return on investment, like you're giving to a specific cause, but. What's more important is that you're getting people on board. You're getting you're getting them engaged, and you're getting them into the habit of you know actually making the transaction. Yeah. So crowdfunding uh, that came out of what was called a skunk works group. Skunk works group, <laughs> which mm-hmm. is a, a phrase, and it was essentially a group that was put together of people from all over. Alumni Affairs and Development, ensuring that different people, you know, at least one person from every department was represented. And the VP of Alumni Affairs and Development, who was the top boss of everybody, put it together and said, I just want you to think of something without restrictions. Come up with a concept that you think, whether it's an HR policy or, you know, something technologically innovative, whatever it is, think of something that you think will improve our day-to-day business as a division and make us more successful. So that's a pretty big blank canvas. And Andrew was tapped, I think, to chair it, to chair that committee. And Andrew pushed hard for an implementation of some sort of Cornell-specific crowdfunding. And so that group could be for a year, talked it through, talked about a bunch of different ideas, ended up settling on crowdfunding or, you know, some sort of a mm-hmm. micro micro fundraising platform so that it eventually it got what it got what year is this what what about what time is this i'm going to say maybe 2013 and this is all and so you guys eventually get into to this type of campaign as far as investment a lot of it's just sweat equity right if you if you get the the digital volunteers on board if you get you know the the, the students and the faculty on board this is something that can be you know, really, really impactful and, and uh, you know, get volume in terms of individual donors in. Yeah, I think what uh, that was, that was the dream. And, and our belief was that, you know, it gets people in the pipeline that otherwise would not have entered it. You know, it's mm. a, you know we think crowdfunding could be a gateway drug for long-term philanthropy especially with younger populations who are just coming out of school. You want them to get comfortable with giving back to their alma mater and what better to offer them than student programs where they could see where they could support people that they're not too far removed from. There was a lot of planning. We met for a long time and Andrew had the foresight and those other people had the foresight to realize that Crowdfunding was going to touch an awful lot of parts of the division, so we had them all at the table from the beginning. So yeah, it, it, you're right and then it does You guys were like 
I mean, I feel like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but in terms of this, really, I mean, it's caught fire industry-wide across, you know, the philanthropic world type of strategy. But, I mean, I feel like 2013, now going back almost five years, I mean, you guys were pioneers in in a sense. I, I don't know too many departments that were doing this type of of work. Yeah, the, the one everyone pointed to that we looked at and that everybody w- would always kind of use as an example was Middlebury had interesting had a, a little crowdfunding site going. That, you know, they're not a not a huge school either, but they had a little little crowdfunding site going. And they were kind of the one and only you know, example out there that people could point to and say, hey, look, somebody somebody else is doing it. Right before we launched, I think the University of Vermont was putting something together. Arizona State was putting something together. So, yeah, we were one of the early ones. Mm-hmm. Definitely not the first, but one of the, one of the early adopters for sure. And again, yeah, we just had the, we had what a lot of people don't have, and that's senior leadership willing to roll the dice, Interesting. Uh, which I think is hard to find in higher ed. I think it's, I mean, it's certainly hard to find back then, you know, five years ago, but I think things have picked up quickly. You have a mm-hmm. lot more higher ed, social media, digital media type conferences mm-hmm. and chatter going all the time. It's become but, impossible to ignore, I think, uh, to, to a well, degree. Well, it has. That's right. That's right. But I still... <laughs> I'm surprised, you know, I, I spoke at a conference with Chris Marshall, so taps me from time to time to show up at, with him at places, put up in the fall, mm-hmm. past fall, and talking about prospect research and alumni engagement through digital media. Mm-hmm. It's still amazing how many people from different schools who are at these conferences with Tommy, yeah, you know, still don't have a full-time person doing this. You know, it's half my job, or, you know, my admin mm-hmm. does it when he or she right. has time. And it's just like, you know, you still kind of expect to get a lot out of it without investing anything in it. And I don't think that's as broadly true as it used to be. But it is surprising that I still am hearing from people at conferences that were like, boy, wish we could have a you. Wish wish we could have a you in our office. Mm, Right. And I just, and one thing I'll say to people at conferences is, you know, you think you can't afford someone to do this for you. I just don't see mm-hmm. how you can afford not to have someone yeah. doing this for you. Right, absolutely. And the big problem, uh, I think and, is, and it's so infinite. You know, if you talk to if you talk to marketers and some of the biggest brands in the world, you know, it, it, it's it's becoming right. It's becoming less of an even playing field. But you know, I used to say to people like <laughs> you, you have just as good of a chance to get in that phone into this device as any as any brand in the world but i mean it's becoming harder you know all these social big these big social media companies these big apps are are monetizing it so now it is you know going to go to the highest bidder you had a great uh line on one of your one of your blog posts too that you said that there there was the rise of the digital gift officer and i That's thought right. that was an interesting you know that was an interesting like thought that that you would hire somebody that would that just is focused about about engaging and then converting those engagements into donations. So, I mean, where do you see the the, the future of the philanthropic the not the the nonprofit industry going uh, on digital? Yeah, well, 
you know, my job really took a turn at Cornell when early on, as I said, it, it was clear to me that we were going to have a lot of skeptics in the office if we didn't start connecting digital engagement to development. Mm-hmm. And right. the thing I was doing early on was I, I had the laborious task of manually approving everyone who wanted access into our Cornell alumni LinkedIn group. Now, going back to 2011, that was about 200 people a week coming in that I had to screen to make sure they had a Cornell right. affiliation. So it's like doing that. Right. Just absolutely mind-dubbing, brutal task. <laughs> I, I remember I walked into Andrew's office. I said, you know, I totally agree with doing this because we had agreed that it was the right thing to do. I said, I just right. think we, should, we could be getting more out of it. I said... I'm approving these people. I've seen their job title, their seniority level, what city they live in, what year mm-hmm. they graduated Cornell, so I know how their age. I'm like, I'm not an expert in fundraising. I mean, at that point, I was, I was still, I still had my LA tan, which was right. barely a tan because I just don't tan well. But <laughs> I, I, I had my LA bird. I was still pink. Um, and I, you know, I'm in there as a communicator. I'm not a fundraiser. I said, but I, I know these are these have to be important factors. And at the time, I didn't get the sense that anybody was looking at it. So Andrew says, you're absolutely right. Let's meet with our prospect research team. So we did that over the next couple months. We end up coming up with these keywords for what a what a prospect would look like based on oh, uh, a link a LinkedIn profile, right? So mm-hmm. you know, because. I'm looking at these people, and I think anybody that says they're a lawyer should be signed up for a major gift. That just shows how naive I was. <laughs> right, right, yeah. Come to find out it, manage, it matters <laughs> what position they are at the law firm, what the law firm is, where the law firm's located, uh, so all that stuff. So I got a great education uh, yeah. from our prospect research team on what what capacity looks like. So that was all new to me. Right. It, as soon as I heard which it, is, it made a ton of sense. Which is all relative. Right. Right, yeah. But for Cornell, a major gift is 100k. Oh yeah, oh, and I yeah. think that might I think that might be going going up if it hasn't already. Um, sure. And so we decide that the prospect research team, to their credit, says, okay, well, you know, we need to give you permission to nominate people within the system for tracking, mm-hmm. because if we if you can do that, then you're putting the social media team. And that, that was actually our, te- our name was the social media team in alumni affairs, which seems so mm-hmm. antiquated now. <laughs> Just call it a social media team. Um, mm-hmm. Who would ever hire that <laughs> in 2011? <laughs> so we, uh, so I did. I got permission to nominate people, and I just started, you know, as I was approving people, I would nominate oh. them. And these were, and these are people that were not tracked yet, that really were not on our radar. And so, you know, I think my first go around with that, I don't know, what did I nominate, like 60-something people, and 30% of them and it ended up, uh, you know, so those are people that I... That's unbelievable. I mean, that's... That that's I, I, a, nominated, uh, I nominated them. They got sent to Prospect Research. Prospect Research right. did their homework on these people, and 30% of them got, got assigned major gift capacity. You know, I nominated 100, 200, 300 people over time. And we eventually, you know, I think we were probably between 25 and 30 percent major gifts, but like 95 percent of them were 25k or higher capacity, and they were all people that were untracked, so they weren't tracked at all at any level. Completely off so the radar. Yeah, I mean, they might be somebody that you know a gift officer kind of knows about or something, but if I put their name in to the tracking system, it would have told me if they were already tracked, so I wouldn't have nominated them. So, yeah, so these are people right. that would really be looked at with any kind of urgency. Mm-hmm. What I would call new blood, right? Exactly. This yeah. is vital 
this is these are these are folks that are not being necessarily engaged or thought of and 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 new and and have the potential over the course of their you know lifetime to make an impact yeah actually i just probably a month ago i got a facebook message from a friend mm-hmm. that works at Cornell Athletics and, uh, and their development office. And it's someone I know pretty well. And she says, do you know the name such and such? And I said, nope, nope, don't know that name. <laughs> and she said, well, some years ago, you nominated him for tracking, and I just visited and closed a major gift. I'm like, oh, how about that? <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> yeah. It's good to hear that, you know, it can take time, but that stuff can pay off, so. Anyway, so this oh, really, you know, this really this really gets the attention of uh, of our senior leadership, and they're like, okay, you need to hire somebody else because this needs to be a bigger part of Keith's job. And mm. um, so then it became, you know, then it was a clear bit of a funnel where you could say, okay, now content matters even more because now we're mm-hmm. given permission to spend time into harvesting who it is we are engaging. So what used to be a silly photo or another picture of winter with a joke in the caption, which just seemed like, <laughs> which just seemed yeah. like low hanging fruit content, just, just for likes and people. I used to disagree with people at conferences that would use the term a cheap like. I would say, what's, what's cheap about a like? That's a person. Mm. That's a person raising their hand saying, yeah. Hey, yeah. All the I water. I'm into, I'm into that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, I don't care if it's a picture of a blizzard, a sunset or, a famous professor that everybody loves. Mm-hmm. You know, you can measure a like. You can measure the person yeah. that likes it. You know, and right. you string enough of those likes together, all of a sudden you realize, oh, 80% of the things this person likes are all around the same type of thing. Maybe that's mm-hmm. where we should make the ask. So that's when you start mm-hmm. to put the pieces together. Mm-hmm. And so the idea of the digital gift officer came about over many years of that. And I started, you know, I was, I had been at Cornell a year yet when I was asked to. Mm-hmm to speak at a three-day conference as a, as a faculty mm-hmm. member at the conference. And I said to Andrew, I'm like, I'm not, I can't do that. I've barely been in this industry. But I did it, and it, was, it wasn't my best conference probably, but it got my feet wet, and it started, you started to understand kind of the hunger for this stuff. And so, you know, I did this for four or five years, three or four years at Cornell, and same kind of stuff, you know, a lot of content and a lot of prospect stuff. And I went to Andrew one day, and I said, hey, this feels like, we can take this up another notch. What do you think about this idea of me being more of a gift officer where, mm. you know, I'm in a unique position where I know how to make content. I know where to deliver it. I know how to measure it. I know how to find people. And I'd already proven, and maybe you've seen this in some other blogs where I've helped some gift officers initiate relationships with prospects mm-hmm. they thought were dead ends and then kind of came alive through personal social media engagement and ended up mm-hmm. giving. And I said, so we have that experience. We have that documented. Mm-hmm. Doesn't it make sense that we would eventually evolve to a place where online community managers are essentially relationship building and begin, beginning the kind of the donor right. cycle online, the cultivation to solicitation yeah. and stewardship? Why can't yeah. that exist? through direct messages on Twitter. You know, starts as general right. Twitter, but it gets more personal. People, you know, why, people are getting why? married people are getting married online. You know what I mean? Like this is um there are literally I mean, maybe millions of people that have met online and chosen right. their 
their significant other online well, the, you know, and started that conversation digitally. Exactly. You know? Yeah, and the pushback you get as well, you know, most of the money comes in from the older generation, you know, and, right. you know, we got to stick with these old tactics because, you know, that's what they like. Yeah, do this for you. I'm at, a, I'm at a hotel resort thing here in Orlando. Right. There's a lot of senior citizens around the pool, a whole bunch of them. Mm-hmm. I'm walking around today noticing how many of them have tablets out, reading on tablets. Right. I mean, I think one of the biggest right. disservices we do for the boomer generation is assume they can't or don't want to adapt. My dad, it's amazing. It, it, I mean, it, your dad's 67? My dad's 67. Like, you know, he's yeah. he's as gadget crazed as any millennial. So Yeah, you know. no, it, it, it's the sa- same for me. My, my father's 68. He's on Facebook. You know, my mother's 60, I think she's 66, and, you know, she's on Instagram. You know, I don't know. If you, if you said that to us probably five years ago, we probably wouldn't necessarily believe it, or maybe we, maybe you did. I, I just, it's amazing. It really is, and, and uh, it, it's just across all, all generations. Maybe uh, you could probably say ge- the generation that that's in their 90s that are still with us but even them you know it's just it's it's amazing it's where it's where people's eyeballs and attention are and so and so you 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 know as a as a brand right you got to be there in some capacity well that's just Doing you, something. you call it a you call it a brand and that's i think it's easy for schools especially not to see themselves as a brand and that there's a you know, we always used to say, boy, there's a lot of lessons higher ed could take from the private sector. Mm-hmm. Not only in how to establish brand loyalty, but how to create an experience for alumni who are essentially our customers that is greater or equal to the other experiences they're already getting from other providers, whether it's an Amazon or a Netflix. People mm-hmm are becoming accustomed to doing business in a certain type right. of way and getting a certain satisfaction. You know, they have a criteria and they come to your website and they can't find the give button, they're gone. Mm. Right? Mm. You know. Mm. Or you know, if you make it hard for them to give online or they can't give on their phone mm. if your website isn't responsive to their device. They'll 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 bail. Well yeah. I mean maybe they'll say they're not angry or they'll be like, oh, you know, I'll have to do it when I get back to my laptop. Well, you mm-hmm. know, right there, you, you lose a percentage, right? Because some people aren't going to go back to the laptop. So, right. you know, all the stats are saying, you know, I was actually just looking up stats today because I'm writing a uh, two years after, it's about two years since I had that digital gift officer blog post. Mm-hmm. And for the last two months, it's like my phone's been ringing off the hook with school saying mm-hmm. like, hey, let's came across that blog piece. Tell me about this. And it's, it's, kind of, it's like maybe I was two years too soon on that. But Cornell mm-hmm. actually let me do it. You know, they gave me 350 mm-hmm. prospects mm-hmm. At, the, uh, at the leadership gift level. And mm-hmm. I started working then. It was right before the end of the fiscal year. Yep. Uh, so I didn't have a lot of time, but I took about 20. Mm-hmm. And I looked for people that had given the previous year but had not yet given to that current fiscal year. And right. so they were, you know, I probably 20 of them in. So what I did was made like a personalized video for mm-hmm. them. And, you know, the videos were similar, but they were kind of tailored. So each person had their unique name on the video. So it felt very personal. And so I quickly was able to reproduce those with different names on them and, you know, a different ending message depending on who the person was or 
where they've shown affinity in the past. And mm-hmm. I got about half of them to convert before the end of the fiscal year. And, right. you know, got a handful of really nice emails from people. One yeah. person said, I'm, I'm the VP, I'm the general manager of a hotel chain. And mm-hmm. I love what you did with this. I'm going to make a gift, but I also want to tell you, I'm going to make sure all of my staff is adopting a strategy like this. Uh, yeah. So again, there's a, there's a, you know, there's a business that says, yeah, this is what we should be doing too. So you've transitioned yourself into Boyce Thompson. Uh, that's right. A little, right? And which is a, I believe it's an entity of, of Cornell University. And I wanted to ask, talk a little bit about that transition. And then uh, number two, the differences between a research institute and a college and university with an alumni network and the differences between those two two entities. Yeah, so uh, it was it was very bittersweet because, you know, just did so many fun, innovative things at Cornell mm-hmm. and really just loved the people I met through all the different higher ed conferences, made so many great friends. The Cornell, Cornellians who, you know, I did not go to Cornell, but over the years, they, you know, are all-star volunteers and online ambassadors. They all just totally adopted me as family. I'm still Facebook friends with so many people just because I met them as Cornell alumni and I was the guy behind the scenes of the social media making videos and, uh, I go to some of their affinity gatherings and live stream things for them. So uh, it was really hard to leave that family and that support. And, but the Science Institute, I was really intrigued by their research. Uh, I saw this also as a place that was greatly in need of an innovation makeover, you know, the Science Institutes. Um, so this is an institute that's a, an affiliate of Cornell, but has its own endowment and also has its own HR, you know, staff are not considered Cornell employees. Uh, Interesting. Separate 501 Separate 501c3? Correct, yeah. So a gift to okay. BTI is not a gift to Cornell or vice versa. So there's no money okay, really coming from Cornell to BTI. I so bringing what I got going at Cornell, the ideas that came out of the team I was a part of, it, it seemed like research institutes like BTI could really benefit from a blueprint of their own. And I knew it was going to be very challenging, and I like that because selling basic scientific research is much different than selling alumni on remembering how much they love a local watering hole. <laughs> so right. the, content, uh, the content's very different. But So I saw it as a challenge. I saw it as an opportunity to be part of the building of a, of a new shop, a new advancement shop, smaller but new. And just felt I'd take a chance on a new career angle. And it is very different because we are not a degree-granting institute. Uh, we are building an alumni program, but our alumni are postdoctoral researchers who mm. spend anywhere from two to five years with us and then ideally get hired to be a faculty member at another university or go into industry to, you know, work for uh, an agricultural business of some sort or a you know, privatized research institute or mm-hmm. firm of some sort. Mm-hmm. So these are the people, you know, we consider our alumni, and there's really bad data on them, so it's a real challenge. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, so whereas an undergraduate experience is I'm going to classes, I'm doing extracurriculars, 
I'm meeting the best friends that I'll have my whole life. Postdoctoral scientists mm-hmm. are working long hours or not great pay. Mm-hmm. Some of them have families. So it's a business. It's much more yeah. of a, a kind of a so business it, it transaction. Is. So trying to inject and build a culture of philanthropy with this population is uh is challenging and it's and it really puts a lot of pressure on engaging them while they're still in the building, helping them with career advancement. And the scientists' personalities are very different than what you would find it, uh, with undergraduate alumni or undergraduate students, you know, it's just a very unique group. So there's a lot of challenges there, uh, but we've shown a nice uptick in back-to-back years now. With, you know, there's just a lot of opportunity there, I saw, to to inject uh, personality in a, mm-hmm. in, a, in a new kind of a, a digital voice for, for a place like BPI. So my bonus question. Okay, bonus question. For you. Is take a, a thousand foot view in in the world of, of philanthropy and and you know folks giving back to uh, nonprofits. Where do you see this? Where, where do you see this all kind of going? First, I would say that we have to realize that things are changing so rapidly. In every way. I mean, I can't believe three years ago, four years ago, just like the idea, maybe I'm wrong on this, but just I don't have stats here, but the feeling I get was we weren't really serious about automated vehicles. Right. Right. And now like every new car you buy can drive itself in some way, can take over if you're getting close to a rumble strip or you know, slows down if you're getting close to the car in front of you. So we're already there in so many ways. Yes, we aren't popping in and letting the car take off without anyone behind the wheel. But Mm -hmm. one example we always used to talk about in the past was nobody thought a company like Blockbuster had anything to worry about. Mm -hmm. And then Netflix shows up, and Blockbuster's not ready. And now Blockbuster is not a thing. So Mm -hmm. if you're not always looking down the road, Mm-hmm. And approaching any business, fundraising especially, as a moving target, then you're really, I think, going to be stuck finding, <laughs> you're going to be finding it difficult to hit your numbers. I mean, I wrote a white mm-hmm. paper a few years ago about the change in what percentage of the money was being raised from what percentage of donors. And right. you know, we're essentially at 99% of the money coming from 1% of the donors. And that basically mirrors, in a way, the wealth discrepancy you're seeing in America. Right. In a way. So the big question is, you know, if you look at the most recent fundraising statistics, right. the, the majority of the revenue is still coming from the boomers. And mm-hmm. I love my parents. I don't know them, but I'm sure your parents are good people, too. But <laughs> the, yeah. the clock is ticking on the boobers, right? And mm-hmm. the millennials or the you know, the Gen Y population, this mm-hmm. is how I saw this most recent stat, which is born in 81 to 97 is how they categorized it. Uh, okay. Has as many people now as... The boomers, uh, oh, slightly more. Actually, has more people, more people. Millennials already, I mean, depending on how you classify these generations, 
basically speaking, millennials already outnumbered the boomers. So all these young activists I'm seeing on social media, uh, you know, I just hope they vote because <laughs> depending on how they're spread around the country, different districts, they could really just change everything if they wanted to uh, because mm-hmm. they they do outnumber the boomers. So but basically what I'm getting at is historically uh, nonprofits and higher education from my research has relied heavily on the mm-hmm. boomers and the greatest generation. Uh, that's the yeah. generation before before the boomers. Yeah. And, and, you know, these are generations that have given out of a sense of duty rather than because they've been touched to do so or they've been inspired. We now have a more fickle donor base. Uh, the younger the people are, the more they want to know where their money's going, the more they want to see the impact. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And, by the way, this giant generation that's bigger than the boomers is also incredibly in debt. You're, you, they're they're mm-hmm. happy they have a diploma, but a lot of them yeah. say, you're asking for money? Look at my student loans. They don't see they don't see the diploma as a certificate into a club. They see it as a receipt. They see it as a bill they got after they spent four years with you. And that's you know, in a lot of ways, not fair to us as an institution, but, you know, you can a little bit understand their point of view, especially when you know career options are, are limited for these groups. A lot of them are, I think a stat I saw was, you know, half the people that are under 30 years, 30 years or younger are underemployed. Yep. So these are people that get a four-year degree in the humanities, and now they're making frappuccinos for people, right? So... There's a lot going against us. That was Keith Hannon. I thank so much for Keith coming on today. Some of the lessons I took from Keith were, number one, rise of the digital gift officer. You can begin to start the donor cycle through prospect research online as well as direct messaging. And the other thing I loved when he said, you can measure alike. What prospects are liking you can center and ask for a proposal around. Also, don't assume the boomer generation doesn't adapt and the statistics are supporting them. Number two, you are a brand. Lessons can be learned from the private sector. People are used to conducting business in a certain way. You can establish brand loyalty by making it easy for them to find information and make a donation. And then finally, nonprofits have traditionally benefited from the greatest generation and the boomers who gave out of a sense of duty. Now, millennials and Gen Y outnumber them. And so we have to adapt and they wanna know where the money is going and what is the impact of their dollars. Getting them on board, getting them used to making that transaction. I want to thank Keith again. You can find him on Twitter at Keith Hannon. You can also find his blog, which I highly recommend. If you Google Keith Hannon Evertrue blog, it should come up. Thanks so much for listening. Hopefully, we gave you something to implement into your development shop. Until next time, my name's Alex Simon. Don't forget to fundraise now. Thanks. <laughs>